His story is not quite that of the ingenue plucked out of the chorus to become a star, but today's guest has seen his solid career performing on Broadway and around the country, in addition to regional choreography gigs, suddenly transform him into one of Broadway's busiest director-choreographers, with credits including Spamalot, The Drowsy Chaperone, Elf, and Book of Mormon, all in the past six years. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm looking forward to spending the next hour tracing the rise of Casey Nicola. Hey, Casey. <laughs> Hi, how are you? I'm good. You must be great. Book of Mormon. Yep. Very successful. Tell me, when you first got a call saying the guys from South Park have written a musical and Bobby Lopez from Avenue Q is involved, um... What was your immediate reaction? Well, I was kind of blown away because it was out of the blue. Uh, I was uh, working on Robin and the Seven Hoods in San Diego at the Old Globe. And uh, I got a call uh, saying they would love to meet with you. We need a director choreographer and they'd love to talk to you. And uh, a six-week workshop will begin in five weeks. So it was it was quick. And I had actually seen a reading of it that they'd done previously a year before that. So I was already a little familiar with it. Um, but it just kind of fell in my lap in that way. And so I drove up to L.A. to meet with Matt and Trey and Ann Garofino. And uh, we hit it off so well. Right we should say Ann Garofino is their the producer. Producers. Yeah. yeah, and the producer of South Park. Um, and we hit it off really well, and that's kind of how it happened. And then the next week, Bobby Lopez flew out, and we just met for a couple times on my days off. And uh, then I opened Robin on a Saturday and started rehearsals for a Mormon workshop on a Monday. Well, what kind of shape was the show in when you first got your hands on it? Where was it in its development? Um, they'd already, they'd already done a couple readings. They'd done, like, I think like two workshops and, uh, like two readings. So they've been working on it for about five years at that point. It was, uh, you know, I had my thoughts. I shared all my thoughts with them. They agreed with most of it, things they wanted to do. And we just all worked as a team, you know? Um, it was about solidifying the second act in the middle of the show a little bit. I thought it had a great uh, beginning and a great ending. And, you know, I said, I think the, the middle's a little muddy. And they were like, yeah, we know, we agree. So, I mean, it really... It, it, it's, it was a great uh, experience and a great collaboration in that way. Had Trey and Matt started writing the show and then was Bobby Lopez brought into it or were they always collaborating? Uh, they all three collaborated the whole time. From the beginning. Yeah. Okay. They said, you know, what would you like to work on? I, you know, we've been thinking about doing a show about Mormons. Really, I have been thinking about that too. I and mean, from, from what I – it's so weird but that's what their conversation is and that's the story I've heard from them. Um, and then they just started working on it. So at the point at which you came in, as you say, mm -hmm. it needed work here, it needed work there, Matt and Trey seem to have a great affinity for musicals. And certainly right. the South Park movie is a brilliant uh, version of a movie or Broadway musical right. in its own warped way. But in terms of actually working with live actors in, in a physical space, that was fairly new for them with music. Right, right, it was. So so what – did you have to bring a sense of reality to them of what could or couldn't be done or was it about you had to figure out a way to realize what they wanted? Uh, sort of a combination but, you know, they're such smart guys that they sort of understood that. Uh, you know, I had to say, well, you know, we can't really end the scene with this and then expect those people to be on stage a second later but sometimes it worked but, you know, it uh, – they're very smart about it and very smart about structure and very smart about comedy. Um, I think that what was new to them is how numbers can be built 
with movement and with uh, some of the structuring. You know, it was sort of taking you know Glenn Kelly, who's a dance arranger uh, and did the dance arrangements on the show, and who I worked with on Spamalot and Drowsy. He flew out to San Diego while I was out there, so we did our pre-production for Mormon in the mornings while we were in tech and uh, doing our previews of uh, Robin in the afternoon and. It was about us taking the numbers and seeing what we wanted to do. Oh, I think this would be a great staging idea. Let's think about this and that. And what if we move this around and that around? And then basically with the new structures of a few of the numbers, we sort of you know, presented them to Trey and Matt and Bobby when we got to uh, our first couple of days of rehearsal in New York for our, um, for our workshop this past summer. How consciously are parts of the show meant to be – Call them parodies. You can call them satires. You can call them homages uh-huh. to other Broadway musicals. Um, I mean, I think pretty. I, I think it's pretty conscious. You know what I mean? It was. It's the thing that. Um, what What we love about the show is that it's taking contemporary comedy, and uh, you know, comedy that pushes buttons and comedy that's risque, and uh, putting it in a traditional package. And that's what it is. Trey kept saying to me, I want Rodgers and Hammerstein. I want Rodgers and Hammerstein, you know, when we met. And it's it's true. And also thinking about, you know, that that wholesomeness of a musical with, uh, you know, against the African stuff was a nice contrast and nice uh, sort of thing. It was interesting as I watched the show and I'll go out on a limb here. People have commented on where they see references to other shows and mm-hmm. I watched – um, as the the Salt Lake City song was sung, and right. I thought, oh, good lord, it's somewhere that's green. Uh-huh. And I didn't know how con- from Little Shop of Horrors, which in its day was an outrageous idea for a oh, musical, yeah. Yeah. and suddenly now, I mean, was that a reference point? I have oh, to know. Oh, absolutely, it yeah. just feels like it. You know, I mean, it's, I think that's what I mean. Th- that's satire too. You know, and mm-hmm. you're you're taking an odd situation and and combining it with something that is familiar to people to come up with something new. You know, well, what struck me even was that the orchestration of it. At points, uh-huh. I went, "Oh, that's that's like uh-huh. the cast album of, of Little Shop." Uh-huh. So, but it's it's an interesting question for the people who come in because of South Park, uh-huh. and certainly there's that lure. Do you think they get? everything in the show or they get what they're looking for and the Broadway fans get what they're looking for and a bit more if they're not acquainted with South Park. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like it's kind of universal to mm-hmm. tell you the truth. You know, I think it's something that, it, yes, both groups do sort of meet in the middle, but it wasn't like we have to do this to appease New York theater fans and we should do this to attract uh, South Park fans. It was never that kind of consciousness. It was sort of like what – what do we think serves the show and what is entertaining to us? And that's sort of where we came up with stuff. Hmm. So as a director, was it about was it about egging them on or at times about pulling the authors back? Um you know what's interesting is is it, it never felt like, oh, I gotta pull teeth to get this or or you guys have gone too far. It, it felt like the show dictated it. You know, every time you do a show, it has its own personality and it has its own needs. And I think this show just did. If something was too far, you, you know, people have asked me that question. They've said, oh, who who pulls them back when they've gone too far? And basically the show itself does. I think everyone self-edits and goes, you know what? That isn't right. It's gone too far for the show or it's not right for the situation. I think that's what, what makes us pull back on something, hmm. you know? Now, this is a somewhat silly question sitting here after the avalanche of positive reaction to the uh-huh. show. But this is an original n- musical not based on any source material. 
right. that opened cold on Broadway. There was no out of town. There was nothing. You just – you had whatever it was, four or five weeks of previews right. and there it is. Why – why was there no out of town? Do you think an out of town would have even given you more opportunities? As I say, it's a dumb question given the success, but I am curious because it was an enormous risk. Well, that plan had already been into effect before I came on board, but you know they'd spent a couple years shaping the material, and uh, I think they felt like it was like it was ready, and that's the hmm. route they wanted to go. You know, it's it's for race and material. It's like, where do you go out of town? And also, you, you know, really, where where are we going to go? And also, also too, there's such a there's such an element of surprise to the show, and such an element of the comedy that you don't want a lot getting out. That that you know, everyone kept saying, "Oh, you're secretive, you're secretive, you're secretive about this show." And it 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 wasn't the the basic reason for that was that there's too much that taken out of context could be seen as really offensive. In context, it doesn't seem nearly as much because there's a sweetness to it. Because there's there's the reason it happens. There's how it comes from the characters. The character the characters wanting something that it, it has a different. Uh, it feels different. Hmm. You know, I've seen so many people come to see and go. That's not nearly as offensive as I thought it was going to be. You know, yes, but if you read them on a piece of paper or you heard someone talk about them, you would think, oh wow, that is harsh. But in the context of the show, it doesn't feel that way. And I have a feeling out of town might have. Done something to that might have might have hurt that and the surprise element in New York, uh, and I think that the sort of keeping it close to our vests and then doing it was a really smart thing on the producer's part and uh, for all of us. That's you know? very interesting because in this day and age, even going out of town, the word gets back. Thank so you, fast. internet. And I've experienced that. And then it's harder to do. It's harder to then get something going again if it gets bad reviews out of town. And a lot of right. times, if you go out of town regionally, you get four afternoons to fix a show or, or change a show based on some of the out-of-town regional contracts. And it's really a tough thing for a new musical, I think. Hmm. Do you think there will be, since a show this successful is bound to spin off a national tour, do you think that when it goes out to those very towns where you said it's too racy to go out of mm -hmm. town, do you think that the show will have a challenge playing across America? Um, it could. I think they'll be smart about what markets they go to. Um, it could. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, because quite honestly, many people that I know that I thought might be offended by the show were not. Hmm. Interesting. You know, they still laugh with their hands over their mouth, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm hearing this, but but offended much less than I thought. Some of my <laughs> most prudish friends, I thought, I don't know if they're going to like this. I hope they do. And I mean, everyone across the boards. I've seen nine, I've seen like 90-year-old women across the aisle from me laughing and having the best time and, and turning to me afterwards saying, are you taking notes? Are you with the show? That is – this was such a good, good show. I mean, <laughs> it's it's funny. Well – I'd love to hear more about your prudish friends, but I think we'll go <laughs> go in another direction. Okay. Um, a lot of your work, when we talk about out of town, you grew up in San Diego, uh -huh. which is now a big tryout town. Right. Was it back then? No, it was not. Not when I was a kid. I mean, I, I did a show at the Old Globe when I was 15 years old. I did The Robber Bridegroom, mm -hmm. uh, starring Brian Stokes Mitchell. Then was Brian Mitchell. Kathy and Jimmy was in it. Greg Barnes, who's done the costumes on a lot of my shows, uh, was in it as well. And it was really, you know, regional theater. We all did it for free with a one equity guest artist, you wow. know. And so it, it there was it wasn't a kind of out of town tryout. And La Jolla Playhouse wasn't around then either, right? Because they, had, I mean, they had existed early on. They'd faded yeah. down. The Globe had certainly been there. Yeah. So. Um, 
when you were 13, you got involved in the San Diego Junior Theater. Yes. Was that really your first exposure to theater? No, it absolutely was. I was in eighth grade and a friend of mine, Sarah Nichols, said, you should go audition for Annie Get Your Gun. And I did and I was a dancing Indian and had the time of my life. Hmm. It was so much fun and I, and I ended up – you know that ended up being my childhood really. From a 13 on, I just uh, – I could care less about school. It was all about theater. So what were your junior – were your other junior roles? Did you move up I play, in oh, rank? I did. I did. <laughs> I moved up to Tommy Gillis in The Music Man. Uh, I played Finch in How to Succeed and uh, you know, the lead in Babes in Arms, um, like that. So when it was time to go to school, was your plan immediately, I'm going to do theater? Uh, yeah, I knew I wanted – I mean I knew I wanted to. Um, I just didn't have the money to go to some of the schools I wanted to go to. I ended up going to UCLA. For a year and a quarter, I um, you know, I couldn't, uh, I I had to go there because financially I had to go to state school. But as a musical, I was interested in musical theater. I wasn't allowed to take voice or dance there, hmm. and I thought this makes no sense. What for do you what mean I not to. allowed? I guess it was too crowded, and we weren't oh. allowed to. You had to be a theater major, and if you were a theater major, you couldn't take voice or dance. Hmm. Um, and it was just felt like it made absolutely no sense for what I wanted to do. So basically, I saved up my money. To, uh, in my freshman year to go to New York on spring break. And um, I did all by myself, went to New York, stayed in Hotel Piccadilly, which is no longer there. Um, first time in the city? First time in the city. Wow. Just ballsy, you know. And, and what's funny too is I, I look back, I don't really know how I knew all these things, but I got it backstage and I went and auditioned for things. No picture, no resume, no nothing. Got some music, a colony. Um, and auditioned for a summer stock and got called back for some things and I ended up getting a – Getting an internship at New London Barn Playhouse in New Hampshire. Hmm. And that was my first job. You know, we did. I ended up going there on my summer break after my freshman year, and you know, we did ten shows. I, was uh, it like ten shows in ten weeks? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And we did the sets, we did the costumes, we cleaned the toilets. Uh, I was in the mall. I also choreographed three of them. You know, just all of that. But it was the best summer of my life. Hmm. I learned so much about it, and then made friends and moved to New York the following February. And so there was no more school. You did your one no, year, basically, year, year and a quarter, and, a quarter and, and, that was and that was it. Yeah. So what kind of work were you getting? I mean, as presumably like a 19 or 20-year-old. Yeah, 19. Um, um, well, you know, I moved to the city and waited tables in many restaurants. Um, I got some would we have seen any of your work? <laughs> I know. Um, Dallas Barbecue, three and a half years. Um, basically, you know, I, I worked uh, – I did summer stock at Glassboro Summer Theater in 82. I did – Lots of small non-equity jobs. Hmm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it's one of those things. I kept watching all my friends get their equity cards right and left and it just was killing me, you know. Uh, and then I lost my hair and started working. And I, basically, I started really getting more jobs. That's when I got my equity card. Uh, when I started I started losing my hair. I mean, I lost it. Because between, you became a young character I man? Is a that it? character man. Between hmm. like 22 and 24, I lost my hair. Hmm. Um, Mortifying at the time for that age, you know, but um, it ended up being the best thing that could have happened to me. Huh. I developed my sense of humor. You know, it, it just – I had to become someone else in a way. Who did you be? What did? What had you been and what did you become? Well, I think I was always like an earnest kid and an excited kid and, you know, a, a good guy. Um, but I think I helped develop my sense of humor, although it was probably pretty self-deprecating. You know, but uh, I had to be, you know, instead of everyone looking at my forehead as they were talking to me, saying, "Hey, I haven't seen you in a long time," just looking at my hairline, I had to start making jokes and I had to start, you know, putting them at ease or whatever else. Hmm. I feel like I developed a lot of my persona 
during that time. You know, very real. It was not like something I put on or you know, but um I think that's when I sort of really grew into who I am during that time. Fascinating. And my humor particularly, I think. Huh. Now I wanna I wanna pick up on something you said, which is that up in New Hampshire mm-hmm. you choreographed some shows. Right. So where did the choreographic impulse come from? I was always a bossy kid and I just always, you know, <laughs> knew I wanted to do that. I loved creating things. Uh since I was a kid, I mean, I was in elementary school and I'd gather friends together. I'd say, let's write a show. And we'd do a show and I'd go to the principal's office and say, can, can I tour this show to classrooms? And I would go <laughs> from room to room and like do stupid shows that we wrote. And, um, you know, no, none of the other kids probably liked them at all. But uh, it was just what I loved to do. But in terms of, I mean, certainly, you know, at a young age, Choreography is whatever you ask them to do. Right. Had there been dance training, say, at the San Diego Junior, Junior Theater? Theater? We took dance class every Saturday mm-hmm. and then just, you know, did shows. That was that was basically it. I w- didn't have a lot of tra- – I didn't, I didn't dance a step till I was 13 years old, hmm. which is late for a lot of people, you know. Um, no, I just always had that creative impulse and I loved dance. But did you ultimately become as – in your – performing time were you did you consider yourself a dancer were you a solid dancer yeah i mm-hmm. think so absolutely absolutely so. you know not a lot of technique but mm-hmm. a lot of enthusiasm <laughs> and you know and uh yeah but just not i wasn't technical i was certainly wasn't a ballet dancer i was a hoofer and more like you know everything i watched in mgm musicals is which is what i loved hmm. so we were talking about 22 to 24 right you transform a bit yes so when did you get your equity card um, I got my equity card in 85 at Beef and Boards Dinner Theater in Indiana. <clears throat> um, they're playing our song and Carousel. And um, there you go. Carousel, we had um, – it was a dinner theater. We had like four people in the ballet. <laughs> um, it was re- kind of ridiculous but it was fun and I had a good time. Mm-hmm. And I got my equity card after that. And then – so in those early years, were you doing a lot of going around and doing regional work and, and things like that or are you getting – Yeah. Because the first New York credit actually that I came up with mm-hmm. was in the early 90s. Were you getting stuff here in the city? Um, yeah. No, lots of lots of regional stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, beef and boards. Uh, a lot of that – I did a tour of 42nd Street. I worked on a cruise ship. I did a lot of that. A lot of that. So you paid your Art dues. Park. I paid my mm-hmm. dues. I feel like everything went in steps for me, which is a good thing because I feel like I'm more appreciative now. Mm-hmm. There was a 1990 bells are ringing at good speed. Good speed, yep. It was a good step. But then you know, the first thing we came upon was in 1992, crazy for you. Right. I did do some stuff before then too. I mean, You did? Yeah, okay. And actually I did a lot of non-equity choreographing mm-hmm. during that time too when I wasn't performing. And then I suddenly said, you know what? I need to focus on – uh, the performing and actually my first big job was um, Kiss of the Spider Woman at New Musicals when Susan Stroman was oh, choreographing of it. Purchase. Yeah. Of it purchase. And that I thought was going to be my big Broadway break. Everybody thought that was going to be a big and it didn't Broadway happen. break. And then yeah. it got crazy for you right after that and through working with Stroman on, on, on that show, on Spider Woman. As somebody who it seems was to a large degree self-taught as a choreographer, mm-hmm. what was it like to then be in a room being choreographed by Susan Stroman? Oh well, amazing, amazing! Because she, you know, she loved loves the, uh, you know, the musicals as much as I did. It was great. I was just in awe of all of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my first Broadway show. Well, that's you know, that's a great for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, 
Then a couple of years later, a musical little remembered now, The Petrified Prince at the Public. Oh, yeah. Now, tell tell yep. us about that. Well, that was an odd one, but um, it was fun. It was a lot of fun people. But it was a it was just a it was a weird show. Because mm-hmm. that was now that was I'm trying to remember correctly. Was that Michael Acusa had written? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and directed by Al Prince. And was Strowman also involved in that one? No, I, Rob, Rob Marshall. Oh, okay. Who I'd worked? With, he choreographed the bells are ringing. I did a good speed. Got it. Okay. Um, but it was not. A great success. It was sort of an intriguing show, yeah. but it didn't. Yeah. It didn't go on. Right. So it's sort of you know you'd had the new musicals experience with Spider Woman where it didn't go on. Then right. Crazy for You, which is a big hit. Right. I mean, still fairly early in your career. Um, were you able to cope with the uncertainty of, oh, yeah. of where the next job was and yeah, what was, was or wasn't going to work? Yeah, I was good with with that. You know, I I, I just en- I enjoyed. It's funny because I never feel – I don't really remember being like totally bummed out by any of that. I just remember learning from it all and, ex- and just have chalking it all up to experience really. Hmm. Well, the same year as Petrified Prince, you were in the the famous though little scene, Best Little Horror House Goes Public. Right. I mean that was – I don't usually use this word. I'm much more polite about artistic uh-huh. uh, endeavors. But that was a big bomb. Yes, what was it like being in that show? And was anybody aware that it, at the time no, it wasn't going well? No, we had a really well. good time working on the show. And, you know, we did um, – it's funny because we did a big old presentation after a workshop that we did in the, at the Nederlander Theater actually. And we just did act one of it and uh, everyone was going nuts for it saying this is a huge hit. It's going to be huge, huge, huge. And we all felt good about it. And then we got into the theater and you could just tell the audiences – it just was not happening. Hmm. But, you know, I don't think we did really – We I don't think as performers we were really aware of it hmm. at the time. Fascinating. Until you get out and a friend says, is that as abysmal to be in as it is to watch? Oh, oh that's nice. It was a little horrifying and, you know. So you've got prudish friends. You've got tactless friends. I have friends. tactless friends. That was an interesting tactless, group you've got. Yeah. But, yeah. So so that was 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 short lived, but then on to another successful show, Victor Victoria, right. which had a nice run. Right. Now at that point, were you starting to get a little more a little larger parts? I mean you played multiple roles. Were you getting a little more seen as this is yeah, going on? Yeah, I mean along? that's where the that's where the no hair thing always fit in well for me. That anytime there was someone that had to say a line, a waiter, a uh, you know, a bartender, a stagehand, uh, you know, all those type roles, a gangster. I usually got those thrown my way. Because you didn't look like the average chorus. Exactly. Boy. exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So and then now Steel Pier. Right. Um Again, I mean, what's interesting is you've had the opportunity early in your career. You're working on a bunch of brand new Broadway musicals. Right. Um, what was what was the development of, of Steel Pier? I mean, how is it to be inside of that process? Oh, it was great. I loved working on that show too. You know, we did a workshop of that ahead of time, uh, like five week workshop. Mm-hmm. We did the production. As you're doing these shows and you're doing them with terrific directors right. and terrific choreographers. Right. You said you'd sort of focused on your career. Were you watching what was going on in rehearsal with an eye towards using it later? Absolutely. I don't know if I was thinking I'm going to use this later. I think I was I was watching – I was just watching and learning, you know. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like I kept saying to myself, 
oh, I would maybe do it this way or I maybe do it that way or what made them decide that or, oh, I love that. That's a great technique or, you know, there were lots of things. I, there was lots of things I learned, you mm-hmm. know, and just sort of sort of took it all in. In between gigs, were you then going off and doing other stuff? Were you even trying to do choreography or directing or had you really um, focused on I really focused on performing and then it seemed when I did have breaks during those shows, like right after Steel Pier, I would I would go and play roles regionally. Mm-hmm. You know, at that point, I didn't really think about the choreographing that much. I thought more about, you know, I want to play roles, you know. So I would do ensemble roles on Broadway and then play roles regionally. You did Scarlet Pimpernel, you were a replacement. Right. Was it in I mean I know we have the, the different versions of yes, Scarlet Pimpernel. You were in you were in two point yes, Okay. Yes, 2.0. Um when when that got done, mm-hmm. was it a full rehearsal period or was it No, I was so happy at that point because after doing all these original shows, that one I learned the show seriously in four days. Wow. And then did it. Hmm. I loved doing that show. I had so much fun. Really? Yeah. Why, why do you, I mean, it doesn't sound like you've been unhappy in anything you've done, but why Why so much fun in that? Um, because it felt like – it felt like less investment in a way, you know, because you didn't have to go through, you know, the excitement about the show, the disappointment if it didn't do well. I mean, it was right after Steel Pier for me too, you mm-hmm. know, and it lasted – Steel Pier lasted I think two months. Um, you know, and Victor Victoria was a long – a long period of time and we started rehearsals in March and we opened in November, mm-hmm. you know, so that was with rehearsals the whole time. So, it, you know, it's, it was a lot of, you know, being in that period of rehearsing during the day and doing something at night, a lot of that. And to be able to just go into a show, um, learn it in four days, not have an understudy. I didn't cover anyone, so I didn't have to go to understudy rehearsals. It just felt like not much responsibility, which I liked, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a change of pace. Okay. Um, then let's see. Saturday Night Fever. Right. Another another show. Again, not tremendously well received, right. but but a good solid bit of work for you. Right. Frank Monero was Tony's dad. dad. At thirty five. I was like thirty five years old. Wow. Yeah. So now I didn't see the show. Did they adapt it so that his father had big numbers? No, I didn't. <laughs> or do it that. was really an acting role. It was really an acting role, and then I had to like be in the ensemble for some other stuff, but not much. I didn't do very much in the show. Mm-hmm. But and then you know, there's like a mega mix at the end, and I like, did a little dancing, and you know, all the young young kids were like, "Oh wow, hey, you're doing pretty well." <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're like oh. 14 kids got their equity cards in that show. You wow. Know? So, so Very even useful. though you weren't that much older, they uh, yeah, I was an old timer to them. You're playing an old timer, yeah. and so you were one yeah. to them. Fascinating. Um, then suddenly, around 2001, 2002, I came across a spate of choreography credits. So, oh, okay, was it was it a case of? That you suddenly said, okay, I want to start doing this again? Yeah, what happened Because I'm talking about things like uh, Double Trouble at Stage 1 in Wichita, mm-hmm. Road to Hollywood at Good Speed, My Fair Lady at the Fifth Avenue. Right. You know, all um, – Prince, Prince and the Pauper also at Fifth Avenue, all in the span of like two years. Yeah, what basically happened is, uh, you know, I did Seussical um, and, you know, went to Boston with that and came to New York. And that's when I kind of felt like I just wanted to do more than, you know, be – in a cage in a purple yarn suit, which is what I say. I mean, there's one night I seriously remember sitting in a cage on stage in a purple yarn suit because I loved working on the show, but I just sat there going, I need more than this, mm-hmm. you know? And um, it basically started that I said, I'm just going to go, I, I got to do something. I got to be creative. Um, and 
I rented studio space Wednesdays and Saturdays between shows. I said, I'm just going to go be creative. I don't know what I'm going to do. In the first few weeks, I was just sitting in there eating a sandwich going, what am I doing? Um, and then I got like about – I got like 20, 25 dancer friends and I put on a presentation. I spent every penny I had, which was like $4,000 to rent studio space, to print things, to do stuff. And I invited all the all the producers and writers and directors I'd ever worked with hmm. and said, come see me be creative basically. And I did – I choreographed three pieces and got all my friends to do it and God love all of them for being so supportive. Um, and it went really well. What were the pieces? What did you choose? I did um, a big tap number to a medley of patriotic songs and set it at a picnic, like a, a Fourth of July picnic. It was a tap number. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did um, a dance number to uh, Come to My Garden from Secret Garden. Hmm. And then I did like a kooky sort of 60s-ish piece to some Beatles music. Hmm. Interesting. Beatles slash Count Basie. So – but it's not – I mean you do the showcase in New York. You invite right. everyone you know. You've right. worked with some very notable directors, choreographers, right. producers, etc. It's not as if you then instantly were taken up here in New York. Well, what happened was uh, that's when I got the job at Fifth Avenue right after that. Right. Um, so that happened and um, I really wanted to focus on choreographing. And then what happened is I got – um, you know, Rob Ashford and I had been friends for years and done like three shows together. And he said, I really want you to be a Millie. Can you be a Millie? And I said, no, it's not what I want to do. I want to focus on choreographing. And um, he said, please. And I said, I'm not really interested right now. And then more time went by and and I you know, submitted my stuff for Dance Break. It was the first Dance Break they ever did. I don't know what that oh, is. Oh, Dance Break is, uh, you know, uh, SDC sponsors, you know, six choreographers uh, and puts on a presentation, much like the one I did by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then – Presents it to people in the industry and has like three presentations. And it's a good way for young choreographers or up-and-coming choreographers to get their work seen. And I – you know, I was so excited to do that. That will be great. It will be another Hmm. big break for me. And and meanwhile, you know, I'd had lots of interviews about choreography and stuff. Um, And the day that I got my rejection letter from Dance Break was one more day that Rob Ashford said, do you want to come audition for Millie? And I said – Sure. I mean, I'm going to be out of town for Prince of the Poppers, so I don't know that I'll be able to. And he said, well, why don't you just come to Michael Mayer's apartment? So I went there and the whole creative team was sitting there. I sang my song. The dog was jumping on me. They said, you want to do the show? And I thought, well, I, I kind of have to. You know, That's like <laughs> the easiest job I've ever gotten. And um, I did. And then you know, a year later, I, so I did Millie knowing I wanted to choreograph. But I thought this would be great and I can start working on choreographing while I'm doing that. And I took a leave to do Road to Hollywood at Goodspeed with Walter Bobby. Um and then I did Dance Break the second year. Uh, I was accepted and uh, did a piece and um, got so much recognition for it and lots of people wanting to work with me. And that's when Des Makinoff called me to do the Sinatra show at Radio City with him. Oh. Mm-hmm. Which was a blast to work with – to choreograph for the Rockettes. And then um, from then, you know, I got a couple I, – I, I got a, a call from Lonnie Price to help out with Can Can and do some of the musical staging because it was a lot for the choreographer to handle – with all those ballets. And that's an encores production. And it was encores. Uh, and then Kathleen Marshall was not able to do Bye Bye Birdie because she, I think, was doing Music Man, the, the TV movie of Music Man. Mm-hmm. So she had to drop out of Bye Bye Birdie with Jerry Sachs. And then Jerry called me to meet with me, and I ended up doing Bye Bye Birdie at Encores. And then that turned out to be fortuitous because if, if, yes. if the press reports are correct, um, 
Mike Nichols was originally working with Jerry Mitchell on uh-huh. Spam a lot, and Jerry had to drop out. And Jerry had to drop out because he was busy and uh, recommended me to Mike, hmm. which was so amazing and so generous. I got a like seriously um, out of the blue, got a call from Wendy Orshan at 101 Productions and said, Mike would like to meet with you about choreographing a Broadway show. I was like, what? Oh my God. And, uh, you know, I went to Mike's apartment. I had my little dance break video. I had my my uh, my resume in my bag and was totally nervous and, you know, went to Mike's apartment, met him. We talked for like an hour. Uh, it was very comfortable and never pulled anything out of my bag. And after an hour, I said, well, do you want the job? I said, yeah. And took the elevator down, sobbed the whole way down, sobbed in the cab the whole way. And uh, that's how I got spam a lot. So when you finally have your first Broadway choreography gig, yeah. was there was there a, a different process you had to adopt? Was it just doing the same thing you'd been doing at Encores in these regional things? Or – I mean I imagine you felt more pressure because of, of the exposure. Um, you know what? I don't remember feeling pressure. I just remember doing my job. Huh. You know, I, yeah, I remember doing my job. I, mean, I was certainly hungry for it and I wanted to – I mean it just made me more driven than feeling the pressure. Mm-hmm. I was like, I know what to do with this. I, I, when, when I'm working, it really just becomes about the work and I kind of don't think about the other stuff as much. Mm-hmm. I mean I eat a ton and I probably do that instead of think about <laughs> it. But, but um, yeah, I don't remember going – this is such a, a pressure time. I remember that I was enjoying working on the show mm-hmm. and solving the problems. And you know, I'm sure there's always pressure when you've got an issue. But you work through it and you keep working on the show. Well, you say solving the problems. I mean, spam a lot. It's, it's not, I can ask some of the same questions I asked you about uh, Book of Mormon. I mean, here you have a revered comedy troupe, Monty mm-hmm. Python, specifically keying off Monty Python on the Holy Grail right. with bits interpolated from some of the other material. Um, putting that on stage, which is at one hand very familiar material to some mm-hmm. people – and a complete mystery to others when you consider that the series you know, was over back in the early – you know, mid-70s. Uh-huh. Um, how much of it was you had to come up with funny choreography? How much was it trying to express in choreographic terms the humor of Monty Python or how much of it was, no, I've just got to put on the dances? Um, no, it was really about how does this work with Monty Python? You know, when Eric had ideas and stuff too and we all just sort of played with stuff and Mike was the one who said it needs to be pastiche and we need to do recognizable things uh, to make it sort of a musical slash anti-musical at the same time. Hmm. Um, you know, I just kept thinking with the choreography for that show is is it has to be like you're changing channels. You know what I mean? You need to get the laugh and go somewhere else. You can't like stop and do one dance number for a really long time. You know, you need to get a laugh here and then move on to a different feel and then get a laugh there and then move on, you know. So that's kind of what my template was for those dances. You also had, I imagine, really looking at the the resume for the first time, you also had to choreograph for people who hadn't necessarily been cast because they were great dancers. Right. I mean, I don't their, – their skill may have been there, but at that point, we would not seen David Hyde Pierce right. in, a, in a musical – Hank Azaria, I don't think we'd seen on Broadway. Right. Tim Curry had certainly done musicals. He he had right. more knowledge. Was there a challenge to having some of these people as givens as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, you had a great chorus, a great ensemble. Right. But, but working with some of those people. 
Well, I mean, they're the stars, so you know you don't expect the stars are going to be great dancers, <laughs> you know. Um, but it was it was really fun to choreograph for them, and uh, it was really fun. David Hyde Pierce wanted to do so, wanted to dance so much, and it was so much fun to choreograph for him, and to create those numbers for those guys was great, and to create D- David's number particular is one I was so proud of, you know. And it, you know, it was interesting because you know when I first got the numbers. It was sort of like, you know, number has a beginning, middle, and end, and I sort of felt like I was handed a lot of middles. You know, I knew I loved all the songs, but they were more ditties, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I had to, you know, work with Glenn Kelly again and and make them – make them bigger and build more and get laughs in them and and all of that, you know? And it was really, really great, really great. And in doing that work with music and how to build and how to choreograph, you had – Eric, you uh-huh. had John Dupre as well, uh-huh. who a lot yeah. of people don't don't remember to credit. So, how much of it was about working? John Dupre certainly had a lot of musical experience with music, right. not necessarily musicals. Right. I don't know, you know, as far as I know, Eric Idle hadn't done any musicals to that point. So, did right. you also have to work with them as the composing team oh, to yeah. understand how to transform? their music into dance music. Right. I mean, I would sort of say, I feel like Eric, we, you know, and Eric was always like, tell me what you need because that's what, that's how we wanted to do it, you know? And, and basically I would say, I need less of this here. Then I'm going to do the dance break with Glenn. And then I need two more choruses over here, you know, and he's great. And then he'll just write the lyrics to it. Hmm. And, um, we just had a really good time working on it. Everyone, you know, it was, it was a really good learning experience. I felt like I learned so much from them. I feel like they learned stuff from me. Um, and the thing with, with the three of us is we all knew sort of where our strengths were. You know, this is Mike's department. I'm the hands-on guy. Mike's the editor. Mike's the big idea guy. Eric is brilliant with the comedy. Like there's nobody better, uh, you know, and just Eric could write so fast, wrote so many, would rewrite like crazy. That doesn't work? Okay, gone. And, you know, sometimes Mike and I would sit there and go, oh, we're cutting the, you know, we're cutting that. We're cutting the, the bridge of death. We're cutting, you know, um, and he said, you know what? If they're laughing the whole time, no one's going to know it's not there until afterwards. And I thought that mm. was really good advice. You know, Tell the story. Make sure it works because there was some iconic Python stuff that we ended up cutting from it because act one was just too long. I mean when we were in Chicago, we cut about a half hour off the show. Hmm. Were those were those pieces that had been musicalized, or were they just pieces of the movie that were being? No, they were they were musicalized. Some of our favorite numbers, actually. There was a whole big witch scene and a song called "Burn Her" that was really great, but it just slowed us down. Um, there was a song that Sada Ramirez sang as a as a cow. Um, <laughs> And it was great. It was really good. Like the cow before being catapulted. Before being catapulted. <laughs> you know, and Tim Hatley designed this great cow dress. Um, it was good. It was really a really collaborative, fun time. Boy, I'd love to see see and hear some of those cut numbers oh, they were from fantastic. Spamalot. They were really good. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it raises, you know, that's an interesting part of of the development of anyone as, as a choreographer or director is – you're doing this work. I mean, you'd been on the side of a performer probably and seen numbers cut or lines cut, et cetera, et cetera. But being able to say yourself at times, you know what? I, okay, I really love this, but I got to let it go. It's it's even more personal, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, I think we all know what's like best for the show. 
You know, if it, it, it's it is tough. You know, and Mike was so good about that and so like ruthless with it. He's like, this is my favorite song on the show, but it has to go. <laughs> and he was right about so much. I mean, I learned so much from him. You know, well, you must have because I think choreographing one Broadway show and your next Broadway show immediately being director and choreographer uh-huh. might well be a record in terms of know, the speed. Right? <laughs> I mean, we certainly know of many choreographers who spent, you know, had a number of choreography credits and then moved into directing. You did it like a shot. Yeah. How did that happen? You know, it it just did. I mean, Kevin McCollum approached me and I met with the Drowsy team the morning after Spamalot opened. Hmm. Kevin said, you know, I'd love for you to direct and choreograph this. And Kevin had known me from um, Prince of the Popper, which was half Fifth Avenue and half Ordway where Kevin was artistic director at the time. And he'd known me through other shows and Victor Victoria and stuff. Um, that was a big leap of faith, but he just felt like it would be right. And I met with the Drowsy team and we got along great. Well, you said you, said you were bossy as a child. Had you been thinking about directing? Because – Nothing that I came up with indicated that you hadn't – had you done any directing regionally no, or no. in stock? I, I directed a couple things but that's not where my heart was or mm-hmm. where I felt like I wanted to go. And I actually you know, choreographed a show called Lucky Duck in San Diego with John Rando as director and that was really fun and really fun with him. And at one point he said, you know, you're going to direct soon. I was like, no, I'm not. I don't really want to do that yet, you know. And I and I really meant it, you know. I said, right. I, I said, I don't I don't see that happening. I really, you know, with all the steps that I'd taken everything, and I thought I'll just do this for a while. But then the drowsy thing came along, and it, the day after you have your first Broadway the morning, choreography, yeah, the morning, credit. yeah, the morning after, and uh, and I just it was a leap of faith. I just said, you know what, this is opportunities presenting itself. I need to do this. When that was presented to you, you say, you know, it was it was so immediate. Was it a case of, yes, I'll take it? Was it a case of, well, I I need to hear it and decide? I mean – Yeah, I mean I did did listen to the music and read the script. I thought it was really funny Um, and I loved the music. I thought it was catchy and um, yeah, I just took it and it changed a lot from when we all started working on it. Well, tell me a little about the changes and about your impact on Drowsy Chaperone. Well, I mean – it's so funny when you're collaborating on something, you don't even notice your own impact because if it's something that's going well, everyone's contributing. You know, so it's sort of you don't remember the you don't remember the how something starts because it, it changes hands so many times as far as like this person inputs that and then he says what about this and then someone else says what about that and then it's just morphed, you know, and it's not one it's never one person really. Um but you know, when they did it in Toronto, it was basically, um, you know, it was done with a chair and it was done with, you know, six doors and it wasn't set like in the man's apartment really. It was a lot of little sketches and skits and homage to the time period. Um, and then the more we started talking about it, it was like really making his apartment a reality. And then, you know, I said, well, what about if they all come out of the refrigerator? And everyone was fighting me on it. Really? <laughs> well, yeah, set-wise. And, and, and producers, no one wants to look at a refrigerator all night. No one wants to see that. You know, um, I, and I, that was like my first image of the show. And I said, I, I have, we have to keep that. That has to happen. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, as the man gets lost in the world, the apartment gets lost. And I just think it was such a – that sort of happened naturally with all of us, you know. Again, without the training, and I'm not trying to harp on this, but but I'm just utterly fascinated. Suddenly, as director, you're dealing with designers, 
mm-hmm. you are dealing, you know, very directly with your producers. Mm-hmm. You know, you say everybody's saying, "I don't," you know, we don't want to look at a refrigerator. Yet it's an inspired moment in the uh-huh. show, and it certainly survived. You had to had to fight for what you wanted, right? What what gave you the I the conviction? No, it's weird. I I guess I've just always been really ballsy about that stuff. Um, when it comes, you know, it's like how did I know to like go get backstage and audition for things when I took a trip to New York? Sometimes I don't even know how how it happens. Um, I think when when it comes to a show and it comes to the work. I'll say anything as far as the work goes. You know, I can I will fight for everything I believe in when it comes to the show or the good of the show and get completely lost in that. Sometimes when it comes to fighting for myself and other parts of my life, I can't do it at all. <laughs> but when it comes to the work, I'm I will say everything that I think I need to say. This is sort of a semantic response to that, but where did you come up with the vocabulary? to be both a choreographer and a director because suddenly when you have to speak with designers, if you've mm-hmm. never worked directly with designers before, you know, when you have to – I mean you've been an actor but being on the other side as a director and figuring out how to draw a performance out of someone, how did, how did that come out of you? I kind of don't know to tell you the truth. Oh. I mean, I really, it, it kind of, I've never, I never really thought about it. It just happened, you know. How did I get into a room with Mike Nichols and Tim Curry and David Hyde Pierce and Eric Idle and Hank Azaria and be okay and not be, you know, wanting to shit myself? You know what I mean? It really, it, for some reason, I get into those situations and I've just been able to, you know. Huh. I was also really, I mean, when I think about it, I mean, I was also really uh, independent as a kid and. You know, taking care of myself and, um, you know, working at an early age and just being interested in all that. And I guess it was just a, a taking care of myself kind of thing. Hmm. Now, with Drowsy, you then had – there were – you did it first in Los Angeles. It right. came to New York. Right. There was a tour. Right. And it also – you did the London production? Yeah. And did you do any of the other there was I know there was an Australian production. Were you involved I in that? I wasn't involved in that. Okay. No. Um what was what was the experience and I guess you'd had certainly with Spam a lot there were multiple companies, right. but the experience of directing the show several times. Um it was great, quite honestly. It was mm-hmm. great. I mean I you know, it was such a labor of love for New York that that was great. It was a first for all of us in many ways. And um London was a huge disappointment for us because it only lasted like two months. Yeah. And I was really proud of that production too. And I got to I got to fix a lot of things that I would have done differently in New York, hmm. um, which was great. It was there was more dancing in it in in it, London. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I got to rearrange some of the stuff that I would always wanted to do a little differently. And you know, what we did smartly with Drowsy Chaperone was really tailor it to the people, the characters that were in the show. And we had to do that again in London for those people. And so great. Beth Level's drowsy chaperone was not Elaine Page's drowsy no, not chaperone. At all. What? What? How did you tailor it differently? Well, e- Elaine is um, not tall, she's and petite. and she was she's petite, and she we did lots of petite jokes, and with her blessing, and she loved it, and she had a blast, and um, it was really fun, and that she was so game in that show, and we had a really good time. Hmm. So at this point. You you were still having the opportunity to create. It wasn't yeah. about 
you know, just getting it up there right. again. When you did the national tour, right. was were there changes then? I don't know where that fell between New York and, and London. London was first, and then the tour uh-huh. was afterward. So then you were able to kind of pick and choose from... Yeah. Yeah, and the tour, the tour, I wasn't as much hands-on as I was the other two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Interesting, interesting. So then you did a play on Broadway. Yes. To be or not to be. Now, I'm just curious, virtually, I mean, really everything we've talked about thus far were musicals. Right. I, I don't think there's been a single play mentioned right. in the past 45 minutes. Right. Um what was it like for you to take on a play? Not my favorite experience. Okay. So just – I mean I know it was it was a, a tough production. Yeah. But, uh, but interesting. Would you like to do plays again? I certainly would. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. So then some new musicals. Yes. You talked right at the beginning about Robin and the Seven Hoods and you'd also done Minsky's. These right. are both out on the West Coast. Right. Um, we've not seen them here in New York. Tell right. me about those out-of-town tryouts mm-hmm. of those shows, which are as yet unseen out of out of those venues. Um, both movie adaptations. Minsky's, if I remember correctly, Bob Martin got involved in right. that. Right. Um, but that was a property that had been around and talked about as a musical for years. Years. You know, Mike Ockrent worked on that to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and Susan Stroman, and uh, you know, he passed away while he was uh, working on it. So it sort of went through a couple other hands, and then ended up getting shelved for a while. And um, I ran into Susan Birkenhead once, and who, she who's said, a lyricist, who's a lyricist, and she said, "You know, I would love for you to take a look at this." And I did, and I I fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did it in L.A. Didn't get the response we wanted to, um, and we're still working on it. Hmm. You didn't get the response, you say. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's because you needed to do more work and that it didn't – wasn't really ready to get that response it, or – Yeah. I, I mean are you responding to them or are you responding to it needed work? No. I, I think that you know, um, we didn't have enough time to work on it. Hmm. We just didn't have enough time to work on it there. You know, that was one of the ones where I said, you know, it was like four afternoons to fix the show and it needed a lot more work than that. Well, that that brings up the question. You know, you said – you did say that early on and how little time you have to work on things and how quickly word gets around about things. Yes. Is it tougher now to keep Minsky's moving forward um, because people say, well, it you know, it didn't entirely work in LA? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, but but you and the authors are still pushing and it forward. And the producers, everyone's working on okay. it. And keep and you know we're doing a reading of it in a couple weeks and just pushing forward. It's got so much great stuff in it, but you know sometimes shows have tricky things, and you it may take a long time to figure out what it needs to be. Mm, interesting. You know? And Robin and the Seven Hoods. Yep, still working on that. Loved working on that show. I've never been prouder of dance numbers in my life. Hmm. Now the challenge with with Robin and the Seven Hoods is certainly the majority of the score is existing music. Did you have right. any new material written for it? No. So what's it like? I mean, certainly there's a catalog to pull from. Right. It was it's it's Sam Con Van Heusen. Con and Jimmy yeah. Van Heusen. Um did you have free range among their material? Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And pulled in stuff that hadn't been in the movie. Certainly. Right. Well, really, from the movie, only one song. Right, because the movie wasn't a big musical. No, I mean, it had numbers, but none of them were their most popular. You know, it had My Kind of Town, Mm -hmm. which is the main one. So 
So again, still working and but pieces to yeah. pull from. But you can't go to an author and say, I really need a new number here. You can only go to a no, catalog you, and try to find exactly. maybe a better number. Exactly. And also it was tricky too because when we would – there were times when we did need new numbers and you can't. All of a sudden you're saying, I need a number from Marion that feels like this. But you know the numbers you haven't used are you know five ballads. Hmm. Like, I don't need a ballad. <laughs> have you listened to every Con Van Heusen song much. in the catalog? Pretty much. Interesting. So then, Elf. Yes. Again, a translation of a film to the stage. Um, what, uh, you know, it was such a star vehicle. Right. As a movie. And I'm wondering, as a director, were you involved in the project from the very beginning as it was being written? Or was yeah, it something you were brought from, on from, to? From the beginning. So what were the conversations about how to take, you know, a Will Ferrell movie and make it not, a singular star vehicle show. Yeah, I mean, we sort of, we knew that, you know, we knew we couldn't compare to Will Ferrell because he's genius in that, you know, and we we did about three different readings and the show really did morph. Um, it became a lot more of a family show uh, because of the Christmas nature of it and it became much more Christmassy than uh, than the movie in a way. Um you know, it was it was tricky. It still has some tricky things that I will want to change when we do it next year. Really? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. What – I mean, can you say that uh, well, generally really what talk, you like? I really haven't talked to oh. the, all of my collaborators yeah. yet. Well, they can but, listen. But no, yes, because you know the thing is, is what, what's so great about the movie is the sort of the subversive tone that it had to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the first 15 minutes of the show are really tough mm-hmm. because – the movie had all that great stuff where you have like a tiny Bob Newhart and a big Will Ferrell and, you know, all these all these jokes with about his size. And it's really tough to do that on stage. Right. And, you know, it's it's really uh, it's a really tricky it's a really tricky thing. You know, you want to set up the tone of Christmas Town. It's very hard to set up subversive stuff when mo- almost all the stuff in the movie relied on sight gags right. and stuff. It, it's hard to do that. Right. There's only so, mu- so many laughs you can get about people being on their knees as elves. Yeah. No, totally. And, you know, the thing is, is um, so what we tried to do was sort of set up the rank and bassness of the of Christmas Town. But I think start, you know, I think that it's, what's important is you have to set up your tone of a tone of your show right off the bat. And I think that set up the tone of the show in an incorrect way because it set it up as being all sweetsy and the, sh- the rest of the show ends up not being that as much once he gets to New York. But I think that after hmm. going through 15 minutes of it, that's where you think the whole show is going to be and you just sort of go, OK, now I know what this is. But that's not really what the show ends up being. But I think that if we can get a little more subversive with the first part of it, that will help the rest of the show. Fascinating. You talk about what movies can do mm-hmm. that you can't do on stage. Right. So your next project, mm-hmm. Aladdin. Right. Taking an animated feature right. where you can literally do anything uh-huh. because it's drawn and translating that to the stage. Right. You're going to do that this summer at Fifth Avenue? Fifth That's Avenue, That's where it's yes. going to start out. Right. Who's, who's working on that with you? Uh, Chad Beglin is doing uh, the book mm-hmm. and Alan Menken. Mm-hmm. is uh, doing the music and Chad is doing a few extra lyrics but the sort of star of it right now is um, is a lot of music by uh, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman right. and restoring a lot of the songs that they had written that were cut from the movie and uh, interpolating them. Interesting. Yeah. Really good too. But again, you know, when so many people who think of Aladdin mm-hmm. think of the genie, you uh-huh. know, there was 
oh, should Robin Williams be nominated for an Oscar for providing the voice for the genie? I mean, right. people didn't even acknowledge, you know, he never saw Robin Williams. Right. But that character mm-hmm. could transform. And every time he did a different voice or a different takeoff, the visual of the genie changed. Right. And suddenly he looked like John Wayne or he looked like whoever right. he That's was voicing. <laughs> Unless you have the most extraordinary performer in the world or the biggest special effects budget in the world, Uh that can't happen on stage. So without giving away too much, Mm -hmm. how do you refocus that experience for the theater? Um, I think you just have to go a completely different way with the genie so it Mm -hmm. doesn't remind you of Robin Williams. Interesting. And that's what we're going to do this time. And obviously, I can't ask you any more about you that. You can't, because no, because <laughs> we haven't finished casting. <laughs> your, your, your arms are crossed. You're sitting back. Yeah, totally. you're, you're clearly not, not open to any, uh, any discussion I about that. I could be that. a blabbermouth about it. <laughs> Coming back to Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. you know, you've talked about the experience of Chaperone. You've talked about Elf where you'd like to, you know, do some other things. Uh-huh. Is Mormon a show that since surely there will be other iterations of it? Right. Are there things you think you'd still like to work on or is it a show that certain performers might prompt you to to change things? I've, I'm really happy with how it is now. And, you know, as you know, I, I'm co-director with Trey Parker, so I would have to ask him those things too. But right. I'm sure there are little things we want to futz with here and there. Um, that's just the way once you get a perspective on it uh, and you've been away from it for a little bit. But I'm really happy with where it is right now. Well, I can imagine you would be, yeah. but it seemed an inevitable question. Yeah. Well, as I said, you know, in the course of six years to go from your first Broadway choreography credit to being an incredibly sought-after director and choreographer, wow. Casey Nicola, it's quite a ride. And thanks for taking a little time out from it to talk to us today for Downstage Center. Absolutely. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY-TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of The Wing's fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.